Let me invite Pastor Josh up here to bring the word for us. Thanks, Pastor Eric. Definitely appreciate you, appreciate your leadership. It was fun being with Eric and Hannibal and, and Sergio and Phil uh, about a week or so ago as we were talking about the future of sermon series. And so it was just really good to kind of interact and, and be together in that space. Well, welcome, TVC. For those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We are grateful for you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. Can you guess? 1 Corinthians what? 13. That's the love chapter. Everybody say love. Love. Yeah, that's the love chapter. So yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. We've been in this series for quite a while uh, where we're looking at this idea of love. Now, as you're turning there, here's a question that I have for you. Have you ever thought about the benefits of love? Have you ever thought about the benefits of love? In his book, Loving People, Dr. John Townsend, he actually gives 11 benefits, but I'll give you four of those benefits this morning as you turn there. Uh, number one, uh, one of the benefits of love is just better relationships. Like if you love and you receive love, you just have a better relationship. Uh, love betters relationships. A love enhances intimacy in relationships. It offers more of a safe place for vulnerability. Uh, so better relationships is a benefit of love. Second, quality of life. Uh, those who love, those who receive love have a better quality of life. They're, they're healthier emotionally, mentally, even physically. Also third, enhances leadership abilities and potential success. If you love others, uh, you will actually have positioned yourself uh, to better your leadership. Uh, number four is it grows you spiritually. Why? Because those who love become more and more like Jesus. But, but I want to offer you a, a fifth benefit. And, and here it is, and it's really actually out of the mouth of our king, is that love enhances our reach to people. In other words, that when we love one another, our love demonstrates Jesus to the world. Uh, Jesus says, they might know me if you love one another. Uh, so love is an evangelistic benefit for the church. But what we've seen in this series is how the Corinthians, they struggled with what? Loving one another. Now, so given their struggle and the exhortation, it's like Paul interrupts his letter. That, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is like. Paul's writing his letter, and it, and, you know, and it kind of has this flow to it. But then he gets to 1 Corinthians 13, and he like interrupts his kind of letter to say, let me tell you what love is, because I think you're struggling with love, and here is what love is. Now, I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying what the reasoning was for their inability or their struggle to love. You, can you guess what that is? And I, I'll, you can guess it to yourself, but here's, here's my reasoning, is that they struggled with power. They struggled with power. They actually were hungry for power. Uh, they wanted their leader because, again, they were fighting over who their leader was. Was it, was it Peter? Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? And, and so they were, they were hungry over who their leader was. Uh, they wanted what was due to them. They were fighting for their rights. They wanted to be seen as more gifted, as more spiritual. <laughs> Think about it this way. They wanted to make church all about them. That's North American church for you. It's all about me. 
It's all about what I want, what music I want, what position I want, what I want the pastors to do for me. Now, let me say a few things about power before we kind of dive into where we're at this morning. Let me, let me define power first. I like Andy Crouch's definition. In its simplest form, here's what power is. Power is the ability to make something of the world. So think about that. that that's in the simplest form. Power is the ability to make something of the world. So that's the reason why we look, when we look at God, he has omnipotent power. Because he created something out of what? Nothing. And here's what's so beautiful and interesting about what God did with his power. He delegated it to humanity to do what? To enhance his creation. And so now we have this power to make something of the world. But second of all, power is neutral. It is neither good nor bad. However... It becomes good or bad when it is exercised. So in and of itself, power, the ability to make something of the world, it's neutral until it is exercised. And you can tell whether or not it is good or bad by how you exercise it, which leads to number three about power. Power is a gift from God to human beings to steward well. Here again, Andy Crouch, he's very helpful. Here's what he writes. Power is a gift, the gift of a giver, who is the supreme model of power used to do what? Bless and serve. Power is not given to benefit those who hold it. It is given for the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and the cosmos itself. And see, if you look at the history of civilization, if you look at the history of humanity, what you will find at the center of the struggle is this idea of how we exercise power. I mean, if you look at what's going on in our political system today, it is a fight for what? Power. And what you have is that you have two sides that have completely different visions for the U.S. And so what they're doing is that they're constantly fighting for one another of who can control that vision. And one of the interesting things over the last 50 years, the polarization between these sides continues to grow, which makes it more vitriol or vitriolic in their pursuit of power. Why? Because they won't control so that they can make something of the U.S. You see, the Corinthians, they had a lot of issues. There were a lot of tension and conflict in the church, and it was rooted in power. What they wanted the Corinthian church to be, what they wanted the Corinthian church to look like. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13, he's like, listen, I don't want you to love power. I want you to have the power of love. And this is what love, this is what agape love looks like. Love is not the abstract of what we say. See, we go around all the time, right, going, I love this, I love this, I love you. But then our actions contradict what we say. See, love is not the abstract of what we say. It's the activity of what we do. Love is a verb. That's what Paul is even getting at here in 1 Corinthians 13. They're verbs. Love flows from our life. Now, if you're ready for the main point, say you're ready. All right, here we go. Here's the main point that we will flesh out for the remainder of our time. God's agape love transforms people 
from those who hunger for a love of power to those who are satisfied in the power to love. Now, I could have just said God's agape love transforms people from those who have a love of power to those who have a power to love. I could have just said that, but I intentionally put hunger and satisfied in there. Because I want us to realize that as flawed, broken, sinful human beings, we have this insatiable hunger to control things. But when the gospel transforms you, when Jesus becomes king of your life, when you receive Jesus' love for you, it transforms you into a person who no longer hungers for control, hungers for power. It actually satisfies you. Jesus' love satisfies you to be a person who lives in the power to love. And that's what we will look at this morning. So will you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 13? We'll start in verse 1, uh, but we're only going to look at verse 5 and 6 this morning. Here's what Paul writes. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge... And if I can have the faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I might boast, but I don't have love, I what? Gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And here's where we are this morning. It is not easily, what? Angered. It keeps no record of. Love does not delight in, but rejoices with the Jesus. As your word is proclaimed this morning, will you go to work, spirit, shaping us and molding us more into new creation. I pray for those who might be here listening online that the word as it is proclaimed would powerfully work in bringing about new creation of those who are far from you. Work mightily. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So four ways that God's love transforms a love of power into a power to love. Way number one. God's love diffuses anger, which normally grabs for power. God's love diffuses anger, which normally grabs for power. Now, the word that Paul uses here for anger can also mean irritable, provoked, upset, or agitated. And so Paul is saying that God's love doesn't get easily rattled. It's not easily irritated. Now, for some of you, you you might know a little bit more of God's word, and you'll think to yourself, well, what about Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, be angry but do not sin? What what relationship is that verse to this verse? Well, I'm glad that you even brought that up. Now, that word in Ephesians 4 for anger, it's actually a different word than what we have here. It means full of fury. That's in Ephesians 4. Be angry, be full of fury, but do not sin. Here, don't be irritable. Love isn't easily irritable. Now, 
It seems that Paul has two different types of anger in mind. Now, I want you to put a pin in those two different types of anger, and I will name them here in a few minutes. But what I want to do right now is that I think it's, I think it's important that when we deal with the topic of anger, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions, okay? The first question that we need to ask is just, what is anger? What is anger? Well, here's what anger is. Anger is an emotional defense mechanism that arises when something you love has been attacked. So it's this defense mechanism. Something happens, your defense mechanism goes up, and you're, and you're like, oh, it's attacking something that I love. Now, years ago when I was in counseling, my counselor gave me this, this will. Um, now, it's not just an anger will. It's, it's an emotional will. But, but angry is over here. Do you realize that anger is just a secondary emotion? So when you walk around going, I'm angry, I'm angry. Well, that's just a secondary emotion. You need to, get, you need to kind of get under the surface because, because anger just sits at the, at the surface. You need to get underneath it to figure out why you're angry, which leads me to question number two. Why are you angry? So whenever you get angry, ask yourself the second question. Why are you angry? Are you angry at something that has happened to you? Did somebody mess up your hair? Like uh, after the gathering, if you come up and mess up my hair, I'm going to be pretty angry. I love my hair the way it is. I spend a lot of time in the morning getting my hair just like this. Even so much so that sometimes my wife says, quit looking at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> you know, I'm like, leave me alone, woman. And, you know, so but maybe, maybe you, get, you get mad because somebody messes up your hair. Someone eats your dessert. I remember when Joni and I, we've been married almost 18 years. I remember early on in our marriage when we would go out to eat, we would share a meal and we would share a dessert. And, and if she got a big bite of the dessert, I usually was pretty irritated at her. Like, that, that's my, listen, woman, you can have, you can have a little bite, a little smidgen. That, you know, but I know, hey, I, I'm airing my dirty laundry. Hey, we, we're all together. We're all sinful and broken. But there's sometimes I, I got a little irritated over dessert. Uh, did someone cut you off in traffic? Uh, did someone lie about you? Did your boss pass you over for a promotion? Are, are you angry at something someone did or something that happened uh, that, that was outside your control? Did your child, child throw a temper tantrum in the grocery store? Uh, did your child leave their room a mess? Did your spouse forget to unload the dishwasher? Uh, did the church make a change you didn't like? Does the church sing music that's not your preference? Are you angry at something that happened to someone else? Maybe you're angry that your child didn't make the team, and so you're angry at the coach. Maybe you get angry when you read the news about racism or acts of violence or other injustices that happen towards uh, others. So what is anger, and then why are you angry? Those are the two questions, but I want to propose a third question. And, and this really gets at the heart of it. Does your anger align with what makes God angry? Does your anger align with what makes God angry? And so what does make God angry? Here's what makes God angry. Any disobedient behavior that his image bearers or dark forces commit against him that detracts, distracts, diminishes, or damages his glory being reflected in his creation. That's what makes God angry. In other words, sin makes God tick. So now that third question 
is now supposed to help you diagnose why you are angry. Uh, Do you get angry at things like people not putting God first? People profaning the name of God? People distorting the character and nature of God? Child abuse, abortion, infidelity, adultery, poverty, racism, violence, murder, gossip, slander, greed, sinful nature, and even death. Do you get angry over the things that God gets angry about? Or do you get angry over the things like your meal wasn't cooked to your liking? Someone didn't recognize your contribution. Your husband didn't notice your haircut. You were passed over for a raise. You had to wear a mask or you had to wear a mask. You, you, uh, your unstated or stated expectations weren't met. Nothing in life seems to go right. You see, what that then exposes is the difference between now the two types of anger, righteous anger and unrighteous anger. You're like, Josh, what's the difference? That's a really good question. Here's the difference. Righteous anger is over mankind's failure to meet God's standards. Unrighteous anger is over mankind's failure to meet your standards. And see, what Paul is saying is that love is not easily angered. When things don't go your way, when your standards aren't met, you're you're not easily angered, you're not easily perturbed, you're not easily irritated. Why? Because love diffuses anger. But what happens in our life, see, anger is this defense mechanism to grab back at power, to grab back at control. And see, because of God's love, we don't react in anger trying to impose our will back into the mix. We don't retaliate against the person who didn't meet our expectations. We don't reinstate our dominance or try to regain our position. We don't try to get what we want to get our way. We don't flex our strength. Here's a question. What kind of world is being built when people react in anger? Think about it. Because again, you got to go back to the definition of power. The ability to make something of the world. When we react in anger, what kind of world are we building? We're building one in which the bond of our relationships are strained because of our anger. Have you ever met a healthy relationship that is grounded in anger? No. And so if we constantly react in anger, even easily being irritated or angered, then what we will find is that our relationships are then thin. But what kind, of, what kind of world are we building if we love? We're building a cross-centric world. Why? Because God was angry over sin. But in his anger over sin and in his desire to pour out his wrath on sinners, Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that his love diffused the anger. Even his righteous anger. And so if his righteous anger is diffused by his love, what do you think unrighteous anger should be? Diffused by love. So think about it this way. So when you're tempted to be angry, when I'm tempted to be angry, choose to diffuse. Everybody say that. Choose to diffuse. Choose to diffuse. Because here's what happens. When you diffuse anger, you diffuse agape. When you defuse anger, see, Eric likes that. He, you know, the little, little wordsmith right here. Yeah, when you defuse anger, they always make fun of me about these little cute little word phrases, but I love them. So 
Don't make fun of my cute word phrases. (laughs) Second way, second way, God's love transforms people from having a love of power to a power to love. Here it is. God's love destroys the leverage to hold power over another. God's love destroys the leverage to hold power over another. What does Paul write? Love keeps no record of what? Wrongs. The word for record is an accounting term. So love does not keep this running list of all the ways that someone has offended us. Now, what are some examples of where we may be tempted to create a list of offenses? Well, what are some? Well, uh, I told my mom she made the sermon this week. And here's what my mom, and my mom's here with me, and so you cannot say anything until afterwards, okay? But, but here's what it is. So growing up, I have a younger brother, and anytime we left a mess in my mom's car, it could have been a candy wrapper, it could have been our McDonald's, uh, you, you know, kind of burger wrapper. I mean, it could have been anything. We, whenever we would leave a mess in my mom's car, you know what she would say to my, my brother and me? She would say, you just wait until you get old enough to get a car because I'm going to leave a mess in your car and make you clean it up. That's what she would say. You know what? So you know what my mom would do? She's, she's creating a list of all the ways she's going to get back at her children when they get old. And when you, when you get a house of your own, I'm going to make sure that I stop mud all over your house. I mean, that's what she would say, you know, because she was irritated because love isn't easily irritable, you know. But that, that's what she would say. But, but maybe for, for you, maybe you have a list of offenses that your boss has made against you. Maybe you have a list of offenses the leadership at the church has against you. Because maybe they haven't responded to your request. Uh, maybe they haven't put you in the position that you want to. And so what you're doing, you're kind of just tallying up all of these offenses in your mind. Maybe it's in your marriage. You just have this mental list that, that's piling up that your spouse has committed against you. Maybe it's a friend saying something pretty nasty about your child. And so then you start picking your friend apart on all of her or his mistakes. Maybe someone lied about you and tarnished your good reputation. And so now you're going to start holding a list of all of the offenses that they have made against you. So those are just some examples where we might be tempted to have a list of offenses. But why do we? Here's here's another question. Why do we hold those offenses? Why do we make the list? Well, first of all, it's just make us feel better about ourselves. Like, so if we can start creating a list of of wrongs that the other person committed, then we start feeling superior over them. Well, I'm just better, I'm I'm just a better person than they are. We use it to our advantage, but we hold it over their heads to make them grovel. I mean, have you ever made made someone that you, you supposedly love grovel? And tell you how sorry they are. And you're like, well, that's just not enough. I'm just so sorry. Well, you need to say a little bit more convincing than that. I mean, it's like you're holding it over their heads. You're using it to your advantage. Now, also, one of the reasons why is that we use it to hurt them. Well, we air their dirty laundry. Or we use our knowledge of their mistakes to sway other people to our side. To take our position. 
Now, how do you know if you're holding grudges? How do you know you have this growing list? Well, here's some. One, if you are holding these grudges and you have this mental list and you see them at Walmart, guess what you do? You dart the other way. You can't even stand to be in their presence. Another way you know is that you'll find yourself periodically thinking about what they did. And you'll find yourself like at work just getting mad over what this other person has done. You'll give this person the silent treatment. And this happens. This happens in our marriages. Is that we're holding a record of wrong over them. And we just can't even, we can't even just talk anymore. And we're constantly, you know, like biting at each other. You'll find yourself plotting revenge. You'll find yourself filled with negative emotions towards them. And the slightest thing that they do will set you off. Let me ask you this, what kind of world do you think we are making when we continue to hold lists and offenses against others? You are creating a prison. You are creating a prison not only for that person that you are holding responsible, but you are also creating a prison in which you are imprisoned to the person you're holding responsible. It's called unforgiveness. And when we do not forgive, not only do we imprison that person that we are not forgiving, we imprison ourselves. You are allowing what they did or didn't do to keep you locked up emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And see, if you look at our world today, here's what has happened. Our world is filled with people that are unforgiving. And when you have a culture and a world of unforgiveness you have a culture filled with bitter and resentment and when you have a culture filled with bitter and resentment bitterness and resentment you have this toxicity that is spread throughout the culture and no one wants to say anything no one wants to do anything because they will they know that if they do the wrong thing say the wrong thing they will be canceled and anathematized by the culture It's the kind of world that power builds. But what kind of world are you making when you destroy the list of offenses? Once again, you're making a cross-centric world. Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, when the Father looks at them, he sees the hands and feet of Jesus. You see, to destroy the list of offenses, it's painful. I get it. The cross was painful. Forgiveness is loving the unlovable and holding no record of wrong against them. Forgiveness is releasing the guilty party from the penalty of their wrongdoing. Forgiveness wipes the slate clean. Forgiveness is dropping the stone that you would have wanted to throw. Forgiveness is extending something to someone that they don't deserve. Yes, it's painful. The degree of the offense will determine the degree of pain you experience when you forgive. Let me say that again. The degree of the offense will determine the the degree of pain you experience when you forgive. I get it. 
But by forgiving people, we're destroying the list of offenses and we're building a more loving world, a cross-centric world. Here's the principle. The love of God in you destroys the list of offenses against you. The love of God in you destroys the list of offenses against you. The third way that we are transformed is that God's love deplores evil that lessens, restricts, or limits power. God's love deplores evil that lessens, restricts, or limits power. Paul writes, love does not delight in what? Evil. Now, the way Paul, he writes this in the context of Corinthians, there are at least two ways that this actually can be applied, which is why I stated the sentence the way I did. God's love deplores evil that lessens, restricts, or limits power. So there's two ways to look at this truth. The first is that love does not delight in the evil that happens to others. Now, we have two children that they play football. They love football. And I've tried to coach my wife in when we cheer and when we don't cheer, okay? Now, I'm going to teach you something today, all right? So my wife knows we do not cheer when the other team jumps off sides and the other team misses a field goal. We don't do that. Because what we will see in the stands is that when the opposing team jumps off sides, we're like, yeah! Especially if they jump on sides when it's a first down. And then, I mean, and Chicago Bear fans, you know this, right? When it comes to missing field goals. Like, we don't cheer when people miss field goals. Why? We are cheering for their mistakes. Like, I'm all for cheering for a great play. I'm all for cheering for a great defensive play, a, a great touchdown pass. I, I'm, I'm for those things. I'm not for cheering for 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds for mistakes that they've made. Because I don't want to be the kind of person that cheers for mistakes. And see, what Paul is saying is that we do not cheer for, we do not delight in evil when bad things happen to people now let me ask you this when are we tempted to celebrate the evil or bad that happens to others well when someone wrongs us when someone's success infringes upon ours when our gifts and abilities are eclipsed by someone else's when someone makes us look bad when we are jealous of someone else we're tempted to celebrate when bad things happen to those people now, signs that we have a heart that celebrates when bad things happen to these people. We'll say things like, bless their heart. Serves them right. He got what was coming to him. She deserved it. Shows him. I hope she chokes. I hope they fail. Hope they lose. Hope they get hurt. Hope she gets fired over. We bring someone's failures up in public. Did you hear about so-and-so? When bad and evil things happen to others, when bad things happen to others, it, it typically lessens or restricts or limits their power. Think about it. Moral failings. It can, it can limit, restrict their power. 
Maybe, maybe a moral failure in a marriage. It, it limits their financial power because then they get a divorce and then everything's divided. And so it, it lessens, it restricts their power. Think about when someone is injured. It, it lessens, it restricts their power from performing and making something on the field, on the court. When defamatory comments or gossip about about someone is leveled against them, well, then their mistakes and their failures aim to lessen and restrict or limit their power. And what Paul, what he writes or what Peter writes in his epistle is that we don't repay evil for evil. We don't don't give insult for insult. So we we don't celebrate evil that happens to others, even if they are our enemies or our frenemies. As believers, we do not take delight in someone else's misfortunes when something bad happens to them. But the second way this plays out is that it plays out by letting sin in the body go unchecked. In other words, by not confronting sin in the body, you are by default condoning and thus delighting in sin publicly. See, in 1 Corinthians 5, here's what Paul writes. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? I mean, it's like the Corinthians. They were, they were like waltzing around, puffed up and proud of what they were allowing to happen. It's as if they were saying, look at how progressive and how of an affirming church we are. That sound a little close to home in the 21st century? Look how progressive. Look how affirming we are. And what Paul is saying is that love doesn't delight in allowing unrighteous behavior to go unchecked. In other words, true agape love disciplines. You can think about it even this way. Agape love holds family members accountable for their sinful activity. I remember years ago, Caleb, he was younger, and we, Joni and I would tell him, when you cross the, when you cross the road on your bike, you look both ways. Look both ways. And there was one afternoon I was out in the front yard, and Caleb, we lived in a subdivision. He was biking home from a friend's house when he literally didn't even look, he darted across the street. And I mean, his life flashed before my eyes because he came within inches of getting hit. Talking about being scared as a parent. Talking about just like, you know, going all like ballistic. Because I was, I was scared. I was angry. I, was, I mean, all of that. I disciplined him severely for that infraction. Why? Because I loved him. I never wanted that to happen again. Listen, true agape love calls out publicly sin. But here's what happens. When you call out sin publicly, it tends to lessen and restrict and limit your power. Why? Because you don't become as popular. You see, that's actually the reason why Jesus was crucified. It's because he would call out sin. He would call out the righteous. He would call out the religious and go, listen, you think you're righteous, you think you're religious, but you're not. And then his miracles and his teaching actually threatened their power, and so they wanted to limit his power. 
See, agape love holds family members accountable. Church, can I just say it this way? As we move further into the 21st century, here in a growing secular and progressive culture, churches will need, and I'm going to say this as tender as I possibly can, churches will need to grow more and more comfortable in saying, thus saith the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And we're not apologetic about it, but this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches Now, we also need to grow more and more comfortable saying, hey, listen, if you aren't a believer, if you do not believe in Jesus as your king, if you're still trying to figure all of this out, or if you are a believer who is struggling in sin, this is a safe community for you. But we must hold intention. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. And hold family members, hold church people, hold church members accountable. And then at the same time, hold intention, God's love for sinners. But what is happening in our culture today, there are churches that they are feeling, they're they're, they're feeling the pressure of the culture and they're feeling like they are becoming irrelevant and archaic in their beliefs. And so therefore they're starting to affirm what God is against. And that's not loving. That's not loving. The cross teaches us that God hates sin. And so if we become a church that affirms sin, we deny the love of God. Got a little excited there. Sorry about that. But here's the principle. Agape love maintains the distinctiveness of Christianity rather than conforming to the desires of the culture. Agape love maintains the distinctiveness of Christianity rather than conforming to the desires of culture. Let me just give you the fourth one and I'm done. God's love delights in God's truth, which has ultimate power. God's love delights in God's truth, which has ultimate power, but love rejoices with the truth. Do you realize that God's truth, God's truth, God's word, has the power to define and create reality? It has the power to guide That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I'm the bread of life. I'm the true vine. That God's word, God's truth has the power to guide. God's truth has the power to set free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. You'll be free from what? Shame, guilt, enslavement to sin. Trying to figure out your place and purpose in this world. It sets you free. God's truth sanctifies them. It shapes them and molds them more into his image. It helps. That's why Jesus says, I'll give you another helper, the spirit of truth. That's why we delight in God's truth. And so here's what happens as believers. When there's this transformation that takes place from a hunger for a love of power, to a power to love, we allow God to work in and through us to create a better world, to give a glimpse of the world to come. And that's what Paul's getting at to the Corinthians, is quit having this hunger for power, of control, relinquish control, relinquish your rights, and allow Jesus, allow the Spirit of God in you to love. Let's pray. Father,
May we be loving people. Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to to do agape love. The activity and the actions of agape love. To diffuse our anger. To destroy lists. To not delight in evil. But to rejoice in your truth. May we be people that have this power to love like Jesus. And that is our prayer. That is our aim. So that the world might know there is a God in heaven that loves them. That cares for them. Because of how we love. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.